right, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our study of the Ten Commandments. Um, I want to do something here at the beginning. We'll do Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. We'll put them up on the screen, and we're going to read these together out loud so that um, just help us as we think about the Ten Commandments uh, to remember these as we speak them out loud. I think sometimes it helps us to do that. So we're going to read together Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. So read with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Good. If we accomplish anything over the next 10 weeks, it'll be that the Ten Commandments, we, we know them better. We can recite them and think about them. So we won't be one of those people in the sur surveys who say, yeah, the Ten Commandments are important. And then when they ask them to recite them, they have no idea what they are. So we're going to see if we can make sure that we avoid that. We are continuing the study. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week, which is really the, the preface, the prologue, sets the stage for God's giving of the Ten Commandments, gives the context to it. We saw last week, just by way of review, just a few things. First of all, that it, the lawgiver identifies himself right from the start. It is God. It is the creator of man, the creator of the heavens and earth. And he immediately establishes his authority when he says, I am the Lord, your God. That is a statement of I am Yahweh. I am sovereign. I rule over creation. And so by virtue of the fact that he is God who has made everything, he now speaks to his people. And, and he does so, and we'll hit this occasionally just to, by way of reminder, second person singular, he's saying it individually. I am your God. I am the, the God of my people, but, but I am your God. I am Lord over all of this. And then the key part of that prologue is that statement in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's not just who he is. He is creator. That in and of itself gives him authority. Um, and, and the fact that he establishes that as Lord, but it is what he has done also that he gives to us to establish the context. I have redeemed you. I have rescued a people for myself out of slavery in Egypt. His singular authority rests in the fact that he's made creation. He has the right to rule over what he's made. We, we belong to him by virtue of being a possession of his and his creation, but he has also redeemed his people. He has saved them, and in this case, very specifically, he says, generations of slavery brought to an end by the saving work of God to rescue his people out of that not on the basis of their works. And that's why we stress that it is the, the law comes after the redemption. He rescues them out of slavery, doesn't give them the law first and say, obey it, and then I'll rescue you, but rather rescues them and then says, here is how you walk after me. Here is how you walk in my image. Here is how you understand better who I am and what you should look like. So he saves them and he gives them the law so they can respond in gratitude and in worship. He is the redeemer of all of his people. And so we turn to these Ten Commandments because we have been rescued by him. We are his. We have been saved by his grace. Those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And so last week we just talked quickly about three ways that we relate to the Ten Commandments as believers in Jesus Christ. One of them is that it, it fuels our worship because it focuses us on our redemption. By looking at the Ten Commandments, we see our need. We see the fact that we are lost sinners 
who are in need of someone to save us, which is what Jesus Christ did. And so this is inspiring, fueling to our worship to help us to think back and to see ourselves in the light of these Ten Commandments and to see what God has done. Second thing is there's this deterrent sort of value in the Ten Commandments in that we now are told this is what the God who who made us and who saved us, this is what he forbids. This is what he says not to do. This is what he describes as evil. And so we are deterred from that as we look to understand what his will is and understand what he forbids. He is clear about that. You go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. One tree you may not eat of. That was the one prohibition. And so God is doing the same thing with us and giving us clear objective standards of good and evil. And then the last thing we looked at last week was just how the Ten Commandments help us in reflecting the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. He perfectly obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. You and I are now called to work, walk worthy of our calling as being followers of his, as belonging to him, as being in Christ. And so he who obeyed and fulfilled the law now shows us this is what, what, what it is to follow after him. The, the Ten Commandments guide us then in understanding what it is to reflect the life of Jesus Christ through our lives. So that's what we talked about last week. Before we jump into the first commandment, just one more sort of preliminary point to think about. And this is a question that maybe you've, you've asked yourself, or if you haven't, somebody may ask you at some point, and I want us to just take a few minutes and think about this, because um, people who are antagonistic toward God will even press in on this point concerning God's law. I said to you last week that God's law is not just the Ten Commandments. They are a part of the law that God gave to the Israelites through Moses. As you work your way through the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and even parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are all portions of God commanding his people, giving them instructions, uh, laws about types of food that were prohibited, laws about crimes and punishment, laws prescribing sacrifices and rituals that they are to carry on on a regular basis, um, laws about diseases and activities that would make them unclean before God and purification rituals in order to become clean again and much more than that. The question then comes up, people will say, well, well, why are we sort of focusing in on these, these Ten Commandments? What about those? How do you, how do you settle in on, on these as being applicable to us today while not the same with the others? So I'll read you a quote here, and you'll have it on the screen from Tim Keller, paraphrasing the objection that he's often heard from people, which is something like this. What I hear most often is Christians ignore lots of Old Testament texts about not eating raw meat or pork or shellfish, not executing people for breaking the Sabbath, not wearing garments woven with two kinds of material, and so on. Then they condemn homosexuality. Aren't you just picking and choosing what you want to believe from the Bible? That's the objection that we've sometimes heard. I've, I've noted at the end of your sermon notes the, the, the title where you can find Keller's article. He goes into a lot more depth on this. But let's think about that for just a few minutes. All of God's law, we know reveals the character of the lawgiver. It is the spoken word of God, and it is a demonstration of his holiness. But some is given for a very specific period of time to a particular nation. It is given to Israel for a period of time, and some we would regard as being timeless and universal and unchanging. So what differentiates them? Typically, theologians will say you can break the law up into three categories. Let's do that for a moment. First, there's the, the timeless 
stuff, the unchanging principles of God's will for man. We call this the moral law of God, summarized by the Ten Commandments. We, we settle in on this because really we, we see, first of all, in the New Testament, it is restated often. This is the same portions of the law that not only did God speak to his people, but then the prophets and the apostles in the New Testament are also referring back to, reaffirming in some way. There's the uniqueness of the Ten Commandments. We saw this last week in Exodus 31 and that God's delivery of them is unique. He, he somehow transcribes them himself, it says, by his own finger, and he gives these plaques to Moses. And so while all of God's law is God speaking, it is given through Moses, Moses is transcribing. There's something about the Ten Commandments that are uniquely given in, in a unique way by God, and then that they are reaffirmed by Jesus and by the apostles in the New Testament. These principles keep coming back again in the teaching of the, the New Testament. Most primarily, we see the Ten Commandments in Jesus' answer to the question of which is the greatest commandment. His answer to the, the first part, the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God, is a summary of the first four commandments. It's how we relate as people to God. We love God with our whole being. And then his next command is to love our neighbor as ourself. And that really summarizes the remaining six of the Ten Commandments, which is how we relate to one another, how we relate as neighbors to one another. And so the moral law doesn't just get given here and then come to a place where we don't see it come back again in the New Testament. We see the same things said over and over again about honesty and covetousness and life and marriage and sexuality. All of these things come back to play as we move through the New Testament and he speaks to the church. Moral law is one. Secondly is the civil or judicial aspect of the law. This is God as king prescribing civil law for his nation, for the people of the nation of Israel. So what happens if a dead body is discovered between two cities? Where's the juris jurisdiction on that? What, what do we do with that? How do we prosecute in those cases? How are inheritances handled? What do you do with a repetitively, stubbornly rebellious child? Some of us, when we read the Old Testament law, wonder if we would have made it out of childhood based on what the law prescribes in terms of the, the utterly rebellious child. Um, just prescriptions for civil order in society given to the nation because Israel was a nation whose king was God. They were under his lead and God governs through the voices of his prophets like Moses and, and others. And God prescribes civil criminal rules and penalties and punishments that go along with breaking those laws. We'll come back to civil in just a second. Third section of the Old Testament law is the ceremonial law. This is all looking at Israel as a nation worshiping its God. So this is the feasts and the sacrifices, the annual feasts that are done, the sacrifices, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the things that are brought to the temple that are celebrated in that way. There's also laws about the condition of the worshiper, focusing in on, on physical condition and in, in terms of being someone who is unclean in some way by virtue of something they have touched or something they have done that makes them unclean to come before God in this sort of public worship that takes place at the temple. And, and there's descriptions then of what to do, how to remain clean. There's certain foods that they're to eat and not to eat, um, things that they should not come in contact with or purification if, if they do. Um, all of that fits under the ceremonial law. Key for us in understanding the ceremonial law is the feasts, the sacrifices, all of it very clearly 
points forward to one person, right? It is all looking forward to who? To Jesus, right? The, the feasts and the sacrifices are all saying again and again, you are a sinner, and you bring the sacrifice acknowledging that blood must be shed. There must be some shedding of blood to cover this sin. The blood of this animal is symbolic, pointing forward to the need of the blood of a perfect sacrifice, a perfect lamb of God, who when he gives that sacrifice, will have sacrificed once and for all. And so there will be no longer a need to come to the temple and bring the sacrifice or to carry on the feasts that all look forward. And so Colossians 2.17, speaking of dietary laws and festivals, says they were a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. They served a purpose in, in pointing to need, pointing to there's got to, be, there's got to be something that casts that shadow that I need to see. And it is Jesus. And he says, now that fulfillment has come. Hebrews 10 talks all about the, the, the bringing of the sacrifice, the guilt offering and the sin offering, time after time after time. And in Hebrews 10.10, it says, um, those burnt offerings, those sin offerings were repeated until the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law are all meant to keep pointing the worshiper forward to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, there is no longer the need to carry those on. What we do as a body of believers is we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper as we have been commanded to do. And both of those look back. Both of those, the baptism looks back on our being joined with Christ in his death and resurrection and saved by Christ. And Lord's table looks back to commemorate the giving of his body and his blood. Um, Jesus Christ is what all of it pointed to. He is the Passover lamb. When the, the, the feast of unleavened bread, the fulfillment of that comes in the bread of life, the one who is completely pure and who gives himself. The day of atonement points forward to the one who made atonement. And in fact, Hebrews says when he did, it was complete. He sat down at the right hand of God after he had offered himself as the sacrifice. So all of this finds its fulfillment in Christ. As we go through the Ten Commandments, we could take time on each of these and look at how Christ fulfills this element of the law. We're going to do that in one final sermon at the end of the series. So if you're wondering at points, how does, how does Christ fulfill this? We'll look at it as we get toward the end of the series. But all of this is pointing forward to Christ. Christ, who also changes the civil law. Because when Jesus Christ comes, now the people of God are no longer identified as a particular ethnic nation. The people of God are now the church. We are of every different tribe and tongue and people, and we are brought together still under Christ, but we are no longer a, a specific nation. So Philip Ryken puts it this way, the church is not a state. We do have a king, namely Christ, but his kingdom is spiritual. Therefore, although the civil laws of the Old Testament contain principles that are useful for governing nations today, God's people are no longer bound by their specific regulations. Here's why I think it's important that we just make that distinction between the civil law for Israel at that time and the moral law that is timeless, expressed in the Ten Commandments, and the difference. As Riken says, there are principles from Scripture contained in that civil law that are helpful, that are, are useful for nations. If they, if they were to apply some of them, they could benefit from that, the, the statutes that are given. But the fact is, as believers, we've been called now to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
to impact the world by living in his grace. And part of that is living out the moral law, as opposed to imposing some kind of civil law on our nation that, that controls the externals. What we are doing by living out the moral law is hopefully showing the transformation of Christ that is internal, that has come from a changed heart, that we are different people, and we are now living out the wisdom that God has given through these commandments. As we, we saw last week, God's moral law is not intended to fix all of the ills of society. God's moral law is for God's people. It is for us to understand and to live, and to the degree that it has a restraining influence on our society as the Spirit works through us, that's a good thing. But the, the ultimate intent is for you and I to live this out, because we, we understand that no... No declaration of God's law, no plaque, no statement, as much as it is a clear statement of God's word, and there's nothing wrong with that, that's a good thing, that in and of itself only leads people to the place of being condemned, found guilty, and in need of a savior. Ultimately, it is still the need for Christ and, and the gospel that the law pointed us toward and continues to point our culture toward because the law can't change hearts. It can't actually transform society by changing people. It can simply say these are God's standards and these things are true. So God's law has a restraining influence, but ultimately the only way that our nation is to be transformed is by God saving people through the discipling work of his church. It is by we as believers living out these truths, speaking his gospel, and seeing his spirit do that work of transforming people. And, and, and it is important to our gospel proclamation that we understand these Ten Commandments and that we, we understand what it is to reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, it... it you, you both have to be side by side. Proclamation of the gospel, but also the life that is consistent as well. The, the, the life that is living that out. Otherwise, we get the charge of hypocrisy when it's just speaking about the things that people must do and then living in the opposite way. We are called to proclaim it, but we are also called to walk in righteousness so that people would see Christ, so that they would see transformed lives. And so it's important for us to start by observing the first commandment, to know and believe and live out what is instructed in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So that's, that's where he starts. If we want to really impact our community, if we want to change our country, if we want to affect our families, then we must live out the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our own lives. That's the heartbeat of, of what I want to suggest to you this morning is in Exodus 20, verse 3. It's not only speaking the gospel, it's living it. And, and I would suggest to you the essence of the first commandment is a call to God's people to uphold the Lord's supremacy in all of life. It is to say that God is supreme over my being, over my affections and my desires and my thinking and my will, the essence of the first commandment is to uphold God's supremacy, to affirm the triune God as being supreme over our lives and that being evident. With each of the Ten Commandments, there is there's a negative 
side, the, the prohibition side, and, and there's implied the positive side. Two of the commandments come at this from the positive, but the other eight all start with the you shall not. And the implication then is much like the put-offs and put-ons of the New Testament. If this is the put-off, then there is something to put in its place. And so we're going to look at both sides of this command, the put-off and the put-on. The command itself is put in, in the terms of the prohibition. You shall not have other gods before me. That's the, the negative. To put it another way is we exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ by not cultivating rivals to God's supremacy in our lives. We exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We, we show that in our lives by we not cultivating rivals to his supremacy by what we do, by what we desire, by what we long for. That's really what verse 3 is talking about when it says that you shall know the gods before me. Do not cultivate rivals to God's supremacy. Don't nurture things in your life, in your attitude, in your heart desires that compete with God's supremacy in your life. If you and I are honest, we know that the greatest rival to the supremacy of God in our lives is ourselves. It is our wants and our desires. It's me. It's, it's what makes me feel good. It's my sense that I've accomplished this and, and, and the belittling of God in the process of me somehow exalting myself or thinking more of myself than I should. And that's, the, that's the, the greatest of the temptations here is just to nurture that. It's to, to let self and self's desires rule when it comes to what I do and how I respond. And when you tick me off or you push my buttons, what I allow myself to do. Is God ruling over me in that moment or am I simply ruling over me in that moment and how I respond? The unbelieving world is filled with rivals to the supremacy of God. They are not concerned with God's supremacy. They are concerned with what feels good. And so the unbelieving world is full of rivals to the supremacy of God. If you Google the word, interesting word, maybe you've heard it, maybe not. The word is Sheilaism. You come to Wikipedia and you'll find this entry in Wikipedia. Sheilaism is a shorthand term for an individual's system of religious belief which co-opts strands of multiple religions chosen by the individual, usually without much theological consideration. In other words, God is who I want God to be. It is, Kathy sent me a link to it, an article I was looking at between the, the services, and it is the popular culture lingo's, it's my truth. It's, it's my, I get to define all of this. I get to, to choose who God is, and that's really what that, that is. The phrase Sheilism is from a book called Habits of the Heart that was like 30 plus years ago, and it was asking people what they believed about God, and, and one of the people interviewed for the book was a lady named Sheila, and the question was, what do you believe about God? And Sheila said, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. While, while the name Sheilaism might be only a, a generation or so old, the, the basic principle contained in her thinking goes back to the beginning of humanity, which says, I want to do what I want to do. That's really what it comes down to. Yes, I've got some room for maybe some church or some kind of religious activity or some good deeds or whatever it might be. But in the end, I still want to pick and choose. 
like the, like the salad bar at Ruby Tuesdays. For all those who saw the first service, I wrongly said Applebee's. I was corrected. Ruby Tuesdays is where the salad bar is. And that's where we go. We sort of pick all those things that we like, the things that we enjoy. And, and that's, that's what the description is here of the unbelieving world as it looks, it looks at God. I'll take a little of the be kind to one another. I'll take a lot of the I love myself. I'll take a good helping of tolerance and certainly none of that judgment kind of stuff. And I come up with a God who's pretty much as I imagine he, she, or it to be. And, and that's enough. For us to to grasp the magnitude of the first commandment. It's really worth thinking about the culture that that was going on at that time as God is speaking to the Israelites. This generation has just come out of Egypt. And Egypt is as polytheistic as you get. Multiple gods. Gods of everything. Every element of nature. And that's what the Israelites come out of. The, the, Ra, the god of the sun. Shu, the god of the air. Isis, the goddess of magic. God of the earth. His wife was goddess of the sky, a goddess of rivers, a god of deserts, a god of crocodiles, a goddess of cats. You know, for those of you who like the Facebook post and have to have cats in there, the Egyptians had a goddess of cats. Go back and look at the plagues that God brings down on Egypt, and you see one after another God checking the boxes of the Egyptian gods and proving that he alone is God, and this so-called deity that they have worshipped is completely ineffective and has no power over him and is unable to stop the plague that affects them. But, but that was the world into which generations of Israelites had lived to the point that we go generations down the road and Ezekiel, God is speaking through Ezekiel and he says to his people, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Does that sound familiar? I am the Lord your God. Here he is now generations later saying, stop, you're, you're still carrying idols that are remnants of what your ancestors knew back in Egypt. I will not be rivaled. There is no competition here. Cast those things away. The first commandment in that culture was entirely radical. Philip Reichen again, the command to be your one and only God was without precedent. None of the other nations in the ancient world prohibited the worship of other gods. They simply assumed that every nation would serve its own deities. And along comes God, who at Mount Sinai says to his people, there will be no rivals to me. I, I will not tolerate you holding up others and giving them godlike qualities because of who he is and what he's done as creator and redeemer, God is able to declare as the first and most fundamental command, I am the Lord your God and you will have no other gods before me. You will not elevate something to rival me and to compete with me in any way. This is God declaring his supremacy and saying to his people, you will uphold this supremacy in all of life. Pause here for just a second, because there's a temptation at this point, sometimes, especially in the unbelieving world, to go, wow, that's an arrogant God. No, that's a God who loves his creation so much that he says, all of this other stuff that you 
think will satisfy you, you think will bless you, you think will make you complete, doesn't satisfy. I made you. I am here to offer to you redemption to save you. I am here to give you joy and lasting peace. And so it's only right that you make me supreme and find the blessing that comes with it. There is blessing in this. This is not, this is not God calling us to a rigid adherence that means just sheer drudgery. It is God calling us to the very best place we could be and saying no other gods before him, nothing else that rivals him. Unless there be any question about the depth of what he meant by this, how extensive this command was, when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Where else in life do, do we ask for that kind of adherence to someone? Where it's just you, everything, everything is devoted. You will give everything in terms of life, thoughts, desires. Give your whole being to God. And that's Jesus Christ, simply in Luke chapter 10, reaffirming Exodus 20 verse 3. That you can have no other gods before God. Nothing should elevate itself to rival him. Don't cultivate things that compete with him. Here again in Exodus 20 verse 3. Second person, singular pronoun, this is God, not only speaking to the nation, but speaking to you and I as his people. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't, don't create that. This isn't, the, the temptation for us is this is a broad judgment against the godlessness of society. This is, this is how terrible our culture is that they don't get this, when in reality, this is God speaking to us, his people, saying, no, you, I'm, I'm demanding supremacy in your life in how you live and how you decide. We, we understand from a biblical perspective that there really aren't other gods. And so when verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's maybe a question of what, why say other gods. They're so-called gods at best. But the reality is what, what God is addressing there is how easily we vest godlike qualities in ourselves or in other people or in stuff or desires in the sense that this becomes consuming. I, I, I want this. I want a claim. I want you to recognize me. I want this person to like me. And so my stuff, my feelings, my accomplishments all have that effect of becoming a ruling force in my life if that becomes the dominant thought of, I want this. I, I, I love God, and I'm glad God's doing what God's doing, but I really want this and we are now vesting godlike quality in whatever that is and so that's what he means by no other gods you you think again about adam and eve and the essence of their rebellion is you do this and it's like you get to be on the throne right next to god because that was satan's temptation you will be like you've got you got it all get this and you'll be right there and you'll be just like god Verse 3, and, and, and there's some good Hebrew imagery here that I think we need to capture as we think about applying this during the week. When verse 3 doesn't just say you shall have no other gods, it says before me. The Hebrew for before me is before my face. There's two implications of that in the Hebrew. The, the idea, one, is in front of God. It, it, it is arrogant to act in a way of 
of, of clinging to something, of holding something up as a rival to him when all of life is lived out in his presence. He is an omnipresent God. And so it is the height of arrogance to stand in the presence of the one true God, clinging to something or someone as if that is taking precedence over him. I know what you want me to do, God, but I really want this at this moment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it here and, and hope for the best. That there's arrogance as we do that before God if we make something supreme over him. But the second part of before my face has the idea in the Hebrew of the language is like against the face. It, 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 we would say in your face. It's like I'm, I'm pushing something into the face of God. I'm not just doing it in front of him and in his presence, but it's as if I am taking it and I am pushing it right at God. The point is there is no middle ground here between God is God and the sovereign Lord, but I can still really sort of enjoy to the point of letting it almost become worship, sex or pleasure or money or popularity or whatever. I, I still have these little competing feelings that are right there because what I'm essentially doing at that point, well, the imagery we need to capture is I am, I'm taking that and I am stuffing that in the face of God and saying, God, I, I want this for my home. I want this for me. I want this in terms of my job. And so I, I'm going to go for it, blessing or otherwise. And it's like we're pushing it in God's face. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one, love the other, be devoted to the one, and despise the other. He uses money in this case. You cannot serve God and money. But the, the principle is you can't serve two masters. My thoughts and desires are called to be yielded to the supremacy of God. And if I start cultivating rivals, I am engaging with another master. I'm allowing another master to come in. And, and more often than not, that's, that's me. That's me and my desires that I'm allowing mastery in that situation. And I'm pushing that rivalry in God's face. Uh, let's think about application of this. And I just want to do this with a bunch of questions. You can jot these down if you want. Or think about these if you want. What runs my life? What runs my life? I, we know the right answer, right? The Sunday school answer is Jesus runs my life, right? And we, can, we all can say that, but, but we're, we're, we're getting down to brass tacks here. What, what really runs my, what drives what I do? What am I living for? What do I obsess over? What is it just, oh man, I just, I think about this. It constantly is on my mind. What nags at me and leaves me feeling empty? Take this away and I just, I am drained. Where do I turn first and most often when things go wrong? Corollary to that, when bad things happen, what's my, what's my go-to way of seeking comfort? When, when when things have gone wrong, what's my response at that point? Some alcohol, some sex, some isolation, some just don't, you know, leave me alone. I'm not dealing with anybody at this point. Could be a whole bunch of different things. What's your go-to when things go wrong? What do, I, what do I keep doing because I'm convinced it makes me happy? Lord willing, our answers to these are, you know, worship, but, but let's be real here. What is it that I keep doing? Maybe it's Maybe it's a game. Maybe it's some trivial activity. Maybe it's something that I think, ah, I, I just really enjoy doing this. This just occupies my time. And I watch time waste away while I do this. What frustrates me when I can't have it? Think about your last major decision. What, what drove that? What, probably several factors. Probably a number of things that came into play. What, what ultimately was the, the deciding point on that? 
Let me give you, Mark Furtado has written a great book on the Ten Commandments, offers this. I'll read this. How many Christians moved to a city because their company transferred them there, only after they moved, discover there's not a good church in the area? How much better it would be if Christians examined the area prior to a move, then told their employers, no, I can't accept this new job and an increased salary because there's not a solid church at which my family and I can worship. So let me caveat that by saying, there are a bunch of you here that don't get a say over when you get moved to, to another city. Understand that you are obeying orders and we pray for you every time that happens when we see our folks transferred someplace else that they will have a local church in that city. But for the rest of us, how does that, how does that process work in terms of how we're thinking about that? The, the tendency is to think about the job and the advancement and the pay increase and all those things. And secondarily to that, what will be there in terms of fellowship with a body of believers? It's just one way of illustrating, does God get the place of supremacy in everything? Do I, do I strive to see God as being supreme over these decisions and these affections? Or is it me and my feelings? G.I. Packer, one last quote, says, Your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. Simple way of putting it. It's easy for us when we look at peoples like the Egyptians to think, well, we're definitely more sophisticated than people who had a god of crocodiles and a goddess of cats. You know, we're, we're better off than that. But to what degree are we driven by sex, money, loneliness, companionship, pleasure, possessions, accomplishments, resume, list goes on and on, of things that, that all have different places in life and can all, in right measure and biblical parameters, can all be good things, how much do they become driving? How much do we allow or cultivate them to take the place of the supremacy of God? Our creator and redeemer begins the first commandment by saying, I'm laying down a mandate for you. I am the Lord your God, no others. No rivals, no competition, jealous God. He says that elsewhere in scripture. So there's, there's nothing here that you should bring up and push in my face that you're gonna try to compete with me. I want to be your God alone. And that's what we are called to do, is to live out the supremacy of our Lord. That's the starting point of the Ten Commandments. Everything else is going to flow from out of that. And our commitment to saying, by God's grace, help us to make you supreme in our lives and what we do. Let's pray. Father, even at this moment, as, as with Scripture, the glimpse that it gives us into heaven, there, there, is, there is profound noisy, wonderful worship going on. The angels and the saints are before you and, and you are being held in awe for who you are. Even as we pray right now, we are breathing air and living in a place where our, our existence is being held up, Colossians says, being sustained by you through Christ. Apart from his sustaining work, we, we're gone. And yet, in your grace, you who is the mighty creator over all of creation has redeemed a people for yourself. 
so that we might answer back to you with gratitude and worship, that we might live out your supremacy, that others might see through our lives what it is to worship the God of heaven and earth. Father, we plead for grace. There are so many competing desires that stir even in our own hearts that plead with us. We crave the, sometimes we crave the approval of other people. We crave a sense of just pleasure that, that we want at any cost. All the different things that go on in our hearts. Lord, we pray for grace to, as we look at this verse this week and seek to apply it, to see the, the futility of, of holding up rivals to you, of letting things step in the way of, of you being in rulership over our lives. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's still not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, might it be clear from your word that they're they are on a path of utter discontentment and sorrow and bitterness. That the only hope, the only peace, the place of blessing is by resting alone in what Jesus Christ did. That he took our sins on himself, died on the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve so that he might offer life and redemption. Father, help us this week uh, as we make decisions as we react to situations and conflict, as we are tempted by circumstances that aren't going the way that we would have ordered them. Help us in those moments to, to plead for you to be supreme, for your spirit to rule in our hearts so that the, the words that come out in those moments, the thoughts that we meditate on in those moments would reflect the fact that we believe there is a sovereign God that we can trust in whatever comes our way. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you alone are God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.